Queer Here, Queer There is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Gadnagahaga people, a site that has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. Hey everyone, I'm Noah, I go by he, him, and welcome back to part two and another episode of Queer Here, Queer There. If you missed the previous episodes on the history of queer spaces in Montreal and the future of queer spaces as part of part one, I first recommend that you go back and listen to them, especially the second episode, which I'm particularly proud of. But if you did miss them, I'll just give a little bit more of a background about myself and the project and everything like that. Uh, So I'm a recent graduate from McGill, and right now I'm working for the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness, which is an emerging nonprofit that seeks to build a sense of community, connection, and belonging for all, especially for communities that have historically faced great challenges of isolation. So like refugees, older people, indigenous groups, people with disabilities, and youth, as well as LGBT groups, to name a few. We do this by engaging in research partnerships to highlight community approaches and policy interventions to overcome social isolation, and by spearheading community events and advocacy to raise awareness about the manifestations of social isolation and what individuals can do to make a change. So this summer, I'm working as a research fellow, and part of that, I've been investigating queer spaces and basically the intersection of queer spaces and loneliness and isolation. And I'm working in collaboration with uh, Our Place Sustainable Developments, which is a planning firm based in the United Kingdom that does all types of really, really interesting placemaking and sustainable developments and urban planning and urban design and all of that. Just to give everyone a heads up, this podcast primarily focuses on queer issues, which may be sensitive to some people. So just to give a recap of the last episodes in part one, for episode number two, we talked about the three main factors affecting queer spaces, which are technology and mainly grinder, gentrification, and as well as the rising acceptance of queer people in urban areas. And just a little bit of a catch up from uh, the last episode and a little bit of a follow up. There's actually kind of an interesting idea for a digital queer space, which we discussed, but it's called the Stonewall Forever website. And it's made in part by the documentary that I shared in the first episode, which was Stonewall Forever. And I'll put again the link to that in the description of this podcast. But it's basically kind of like a digital queer space that is rooted in history, but also in a physical place as well. So they're basically using like augmented reality to create a monument to Stonewall and kind of like an oral history account of pre Stonewall, but immediately after Stonewall, but also kind of like, what does Stonewall mean to people now? And I thought that it was really, really interesting and kind of a good, I guess a good mix of kind of the digital use, but also putting it and rooting it in a physical place as well. And there's also, I found this as well, it's a map that's produced by the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project that actually next episode I'll be talking about a lot and hopefully having a guest on as well. But it basically maps LGBT sites around the city that have been important to queer rights and the LGBT rights movement more generally as well. Uh, So it is really cool, and again, I'll put the link to both of those in the description of this episode. I do want to quickly shout out another amazing queer podcast uh, that's hosted out of Toronto. It's called Do You Queer What I Queer, and it's hosted by two people named Tom and Elliot, and they basically discuss a lot of identity-related politics with the aim to broaden the collective perspective of the LGBTQ community. And we are working on having some type of collaboration potentially in the fall, but I will link their podcast in the description of this episode. It really, really is amazing, and it's honestly most of the time pretty hilarious as well. So as for this episode, we're mainly going to focus on loneliness, isolation. Um, There was a light focus on mental health with Walt Odets in the last episode where we talked about kind of the breakdown of the queer community. 
Um, but mental health automatically entwines with queer identity because there is such a high prevalence of mental illness and mental health uh, issues with the queer community. And this episode is going to kind of pick up from that, and we're going to talk about that, and I'm also going to share my story as well. But you should note that this episode will have content related to mental health struggles, and this is just a preemptive content warning for the rest of the podcast. Just to give a little bit of a roadmap of the episode, I'm going to start off with my personal story with isolation, mental health, and coming out, and then moving on to kind of some of the current challenges, as well as just challenges more generally that I've had with mental health access, especially for queer populations, but then also talking a little bit more about some of the reasons why this disproportionate amount of mental health conditions occur, and hopefully this episode will give an overview of this issue and offer some possible solutions and strategies for reducing isolation in the queer community. Also, I forgot to mention, but throughout this episode, we're going to be hearing from my friend Georgia. So Georgia is a close friend of mine. I've known her for years. We're going to have basically just a pretty lax conversation um, about mental health and isolation and kind of the process of coming out, which is something that we focused on when I interviewed her. Before we actually get into the main episode, I just want to start off with some definitions so that we have just a clear baseline. Mental health, as defined by uh, the World Health Organization, is a state of well-being in which the individual realizes their own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make contributions to their community. And here for loneliness, loneliness is an emotion, and as such it can be fleeting. A person can feel lonely one day, but not the next. They can feel lonely one moment and not the next. They can feel lonely by themselves or lonely in a crowd. But at the heart of it, only the individual, him or herself, can decide whether they feel lonely. But when we're talking about social isolation, it's more kind of about injustice and it's more of a structural thing that creates barriers for people to find a sense of belonging to a community, to form meaningful relations with other people, to be agents of change, and basically to exercise their human rights. So having these definitions in the back of your mind, I want to tell you my coming out story and my experience with loneliness, isolation, and mental health. But before I do that, I want to mention and stress that not all members of the LGBTQ community have the same experiences that I have. However, discrimination, prejudice, denial of basic civil and human rights, harassment, family rejection are all common for those with these identities, especially for people who exist at the intersection of queer identities and as well as other marginalized identities, particularly Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, as well as people with a disability and those living in poverty. So I probably knew that I was gay, or at least how I understood my identity at the time, around 7th or 8th grade, so I was probably about 11, 12, 13 maybe, but I really didn't know for sure and I didn't really kind of come to a direct understanding until I got into high school. I switched from a public school into a pretty socially conservative private school in Toronto. And I was closeted for my entire high school experience, and there were a few instances uh, when people, including my mom, asked me if I was gay. And to be honest, the fact that other people could pick up on whatever I was, you know, giving off that might have, you know, outed me as gay, uh, it kind of drove me further into the closet and prompted me to change my behavior because I kind of considered myself as presenting quote-unquote too gay. I was battling some pretty extreme depression and anxiety, and it all kind of stems from this experience of being in the closet with mixed with other trauma I had experienced. But there is something that is so inherently isolating about concealing yourself. I felt like I couldn't connect to my peers at all, that no one understood me for who I was, that, and that I 
essentially couldn't talk to anyone about this experience of a being gay but also having to hide it as well in high school i didn't really have a wide social network in school i faced people using homophobic among other extremely offensive slur uh, using the word gay to describe something negative or someone being sensitive especially men being sensitive and there's no explicit condemnation of this discrimination and language from teachers. And there's this one particular story I remember when I was in grade 9, there was an out student in grade 12, and he was relentlessly bullied by everyone in the school. And mind you, this was, uh, I think I started that school in 2011. 2011 to 2015. But there's one particular instance where he wore drag to a school event, and the amount of bullying and homophobia that stemmed from that pushed me as far into the closet as possible. I also didn't realize that gender expression, identity, and sexuality all fall on a spectrum. So for me, I felt like the way that I wanted to internally express my identity and sexuality didn't align with the ways that I had seen queer men being represented both in my life and in media. And at that time, the only real solid reference point I had was Modern Family. But again, as a you know, 14, 15 year old high school student, and I was not a middle-aged married man adopting a kid, there was a total lack of representation in media of the entire spectrum of gender expression, identity, and sexuality that is only now starting to pick up with shows like Pose. But yeah, it, it really was just a total lack of any type of visibility. And I basically lived like that for four years. I never told anyone, and I lived with that isolating experience of feeling so alone and being afraid, ashamed, and angry that no one understood me, and that if people were to come to understand me, meaning for me to come out, that I would face the exact same treatment as this older student. But at school, there were no resources, our sex ed curriculum did not cover any gender expression, identity, or sexuality, barely covered how to put a condom on properly, there were no type of support networks, there's no therapist or social workers, even though that this was a private school, and even my assigned guidance counselor, who's, you know, is supposed to be there for me, didn't really actually make it clear that she was there for me, she was mainly like, okay, here's the ACT score you need to get into NYU, but that was basically it. So really, I had just a total lack of information and had no idea what I was doing, what I was feeling, what even identity was. And so, again, George and I had kind of similar environments in high school, uh, and here's a snippet of our conversation about the homophobic attitude in Toronto's private high schools. Like, my, my teachers in high school, like, for 100%, 100% heard people saying, like, fag and, like, other, like, derogatory terms and, like... Uh, using gay in like a negative connotation like 100% and like there was nothing like we had one assembly I think that was about HIV and mm -hmm. it more seemed like they had someone who had HIV come in and talk to us and it seemed um, like people only took away from that as like oh this guy is gay and he has HIV and like that's the association right there, of course but, but straight we, people don't get HIV right it's only like ridiculous people. right and like there was <laughs> we never had an assembly about like gender identity or sexuality or like don't be homophobic, right? Like, just super basic shit, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, like, so frustrating now because I see that my high school now has changed a lot, but I'm, like, I was only there, like, four years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like, four years. That's not that long. And you could have done this so much earlier. Yeah. And, like, there's nothing. They, they didn't try, right? It's so wild, too, because, like, we both went to private school and, like, that costs a lot of money <laughs> so when you're paying good money for a school you hope that it's going to go above and beyond but like my school they wouldn't allow a gsa they had to call it diversity club because he said like a great like the the principal said a, a gay straight alliance was too like specific or something along those lines but it just like 
And I'm like, it's illegal to say no to a GSA in public schools, but because a private school is private, oh my god, they can say no. Like that's so weird. Like that's yeah. so crazy to me. Like we're paying for an education, we're paying more money to get like a better education or hopefully a better education than like some of the public schools, and it still is like, Mm-mm, like you don't get everything that a public school gets. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just like weird, like institutionalized homophobia within high school as well. Yeah. And it's so true, though, that, like, we do have this institutionalized homophobia. And it was particularly interesting for me because I saw friends of mine that went to public schools and there were many out kids. They had a gay-straight alliance. It was very, very accepting. So it's hard for me to kind of comprehend that now looking back at it. I was lucky enough that at home things were relatively fine. I was a pretty independent child. And from about the age of seven or eight, I was kind of wholly responsible for myself. Uh, My parents never made blatantly homophobic comments. Uh, My older brothers had their moments, but again, never blatantly homophobic, especially towards me. But if you take all these factors together, being in the closet for four years, not having any queer role models or exposure to accurate and relatable queer representation in the media, a school that never taught me the difference between the letters and the LGBTQ acronym, and basically no support system, you get me circa 2011 to 2015. I was extremely lonely and extremely isolated from my peers and my family and extremely depressed. Before I talk about my experience with coming out, itself kind of another isolating experience, I want to note that coming out for queer people is never this singular experience. Living in a heteronormative society, coming out is a constant process. And I've had a lot of experiences recently, uh, but sometimes I walk into certain spaces or areas and I'm acutely aware of my queer identity and how I present myself. And this is mainly driven by fear. But queer people have to constantly isolate and differentiate themselves from mainstream society through the process of coming out. And something that we always have to do. When a colleague tries to set us up with her girlfriend and you have to explain that you are unfortunately not interested. And coming out for me, a a cis white gay man, is an exponentially different experience than those who are trans uh, or black indigenous people of color or both. That fear I was talking about earlier is even more present because discrimination based on these identities is much more prevalent and intense. And I asked Georgia to share her coming out story and kind of expand on the lifelong issue of constantly having to come out as she came out during high school and had a pretty different experience than me. Yeah, I think that before, during and after coming out, if it happens for you in high school, it's like one of the strangest experiences you can have in your life because as you like watch all of like your straight friends like grow and develop and become like like more fuller versions of themselves you're still just like a little bit stunted trying to figure out who who you are and like fundamentally like who you want in your life and like your future and like romantically which is kind of terrifying uh i think like before coming out there's a big thing of like learning like something about yourself that you don't necessarily like or agree with and then trying to battle within yourself for a long time and then during coming out it's this whole process of learning who your friends are and who you can trust and who you care for and who cares for you enough to like either be completely chill with it or look past something that they aren't super chill with Mm -hmm. and then afterwards it's just kind of figuring out that like it's going to be a little more work for you always in life and that's kind of like that's that's hard that's i mean it's not isolating but it can feel lonely because it's like you have to Like, every time you have to come out or every time, like, you walk into a room, it, like, truly is, like, you versus 
everyone else, you know? Yo, yeah, and that whole experience of, like, like if I'm with some friends and there's, like, a straight guy there and he starts to hit on me and, like, I can feel my friends trying to be like, oh, she's gay, but, like, not wanting to, like, out me. And it's, like, this weird, awkward feeling where I'm, like, like, I, I'm close with a lot of straight people and it, it kind of, it's weird to realize that they have no idea of what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Like, being outed. And there's always that hot minute of, like, panic. When yeah. someone says it and then they're like totally chill and you're like, oh, okay, it's good. We're good. Yeah, I know. I have like a similar thing that um, I didn't talk about this yesterday, but like when whenever I'm giving a tour, it's like it's I'm like pretty I'm like visibly I would say that I'm like halfway between like being visibly queer and not being visibly queer. Like mm-hmm. Some people obviously will pick up pick up on it better than others. But then sometimes I wear a shirt that like just says gay on it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and like I make a mention like when I'm giving tours to talk about like Pride in Montreal and stuff like that. But it's like it's always hard for me because I'm this is like a group of like twenty some odd strangers mm-hmm. who are coming from all over the world. Some of the people are coming from places where like homosexuality like is the death penalty, right? Yeah. And so like I constantly have to be like acutely aware of that. And it's also just, like, such a unique experience for queer people to kind of be isolated and not be singled out. Mm -hmm. But I do find that I, like, we've been able to connect over the fact that we have that kind of similar isolating experience, though. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that there's benefit in that? Like, not not to, like, talk trauma or anything, but do you feel (laughs) like there's having a community of queer people talking about their issues more openly and, like, the experience of being queer is obviously beneficial, right? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Like, I mean... Like, you feel so, like, isolated and, like, self-isolated when you're younger, when you're, like, realizing you're queer because you just, you're putting yourself in this position or it feels like you're putting yourself in this position. And so, like, kind of coming out on the other side and interacting with people who felt the same way as you at the same time, it's super comforting and welcoming and, like, makes, like, the feeling of community kind of come back to you when Mm -hmm. you've lost it a little bit. Yeah. And we did kind of talk about, like, we are talking about this, but, like, the process of coming out. Um, but it's kind of instilled in like queer people that like, oh, you have to make this big reveal or you have to go through Mm -hmm. this like process of coming out. And like in my experience of that, it was inherently isolating because it took me a while to realize like, oh, I'm different from the majority of people. Mm -hmm. And now I have to tell everyone that I'm like different from the majority of people, even though I really don't want to, but it's like the only way that I can find like, you know, find my truth or like live my authentic self. Right. Um, do you think that there's something that's, like, inherently isolating just about that process specifically, like, the process of coming out or, I mean, coming outs with plural, you know? Mm -hmm. I think, like, at least for me, when I think about my coming out experience, I I never really think of my friends or anything like that because, I mean, like, I lost one friend during coming out, but it, it wasn't a big deal. My biggest, like, or, like, the weirdest experience for me with coming out was coming out to my mom because... It was, like, I, basically what happened is I had a hickey on my neck, and she asked who gave it to me, and I had a hot moment where I realized in my head, either I say it's a boy, and she asks a million questions, or I say it's a girl, and she drops it, so I told her I'm gay, and she kind of pat my head and was like, it's okay, and then we didn't say anything about it for about a week, and then she sat me down, and she was like, what was this bomb you just dropped on me, you need to tell me what's going on, is it a face, da-da-da-da, all of these things, and the entire time I was so, like, angry, because I knew that my mom is, like, smarter than this and knows that it's, like, cool to be gay, and (laughs) she isn't, like, homophobic, like, she's friends with gay people, like, it's fully a thing for her, like... 
I don't know. It was just weird to hear it come out of her mouth and be like, but why is it different for me? And that was super isolating in itself because instead of having like that support from someone who's supposed to support you like so heavily in your life and be Mm -hmm. there for you like it's just me and my mom like I need her as support like not having that for a minute just like kind of added to the already like isolation I felt like in high school and like with I don't know the people surrounding me yeah it's like you go through this whole process of like already knowing that you're kind of alone in your own your feeling of like your identity and then you're like okay well like you go to the person who you like looked up to and you want to like support you and they mm-hmm. kind of, and like the thing is is that I, I I gave like a lot of leniency to my parents when I was coming out because they had never been really like they didn't really know a gay person they were never really friends with a gay person so they just truly didn't know mm-hmm. and so they said some things that I still remember that are like pretty awful mm-hmm. and like it's all kind of like a process of growth but it is like and, like, it, I even read it in, like, the studies that, I, that I've that i read for this research. It's, like, the number one thing to improve mental health indicators, like, in young queer people is a positive response to coming out. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, you can go through this entire process of, like, being isolated throughout high school. You come out to your parents and it's just, like, oh, well, like, I just went through that hell of being isolated and I'm trying to, you know, not be isolated anymore. And now I feel even more isolated, right? Yeah. It's so hard, though, because at the same time with parents, it's like, just like you've known yourself your whole life, they've known you your whole life, Mm -hmm. and they see you as one certain way, just like you saw yourself as straight growing up. And then when you realize it's this whole, like, overwhelming process of, like, what is this new information? I don't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So when you give that same information to your parents, even though it isn't their lives, it's still, like, you are their life. So it takes, like, a lot for them to come around sometimes and it's important to like give them that leeway mm-hmm. i guess and yeah. just let them like grow and learn from it on their own and so that's georgia's story and i feel like her experience with her mom is something i can definitely connect with in terms of when i came out to the first person i actually came out to was my roommate in first year who was also gay and he was actually the first openly gay person i'd met at the time and probably within a week of me moving to Montreal, this happened and starting at McGill. But I was absolutely petrified and terrified and felt like I was opening a door that I basically could never close again. And my first time, I mean, I'm again reiterating, first time coming out was honestly pretty okay. My peers and my friends I was meeting just kind of as a new student accepted me. And people who I just met and I'm forever indebted to supported me as I told my family and a few of my childhood and long-term friends about my identity. And I faced a little outward homophobia, except when I told a loved one who replied, quote, how do you know? You've never even been with a girl before. Why don't you try? Are you sure you're not bi? And it's microaggressions like that that constantly build up and wear on someone. And this is literally the first time I came out to this person. And within like maybe 24 hours of me actually coming to terms with the fact that I was coming out, and it's already starting to build up. But they do constantly build up and wear on someone. And the process of constantly coming out constantly exposes you to these microaggressions, which may seem harmless, but do take their toll on someone's mental health. And minority stress, which I'll talk about later in the podcast, constantly exposes you to these microaggressions. And George and I talked about it previously with the whole guys assuming she is straight, but we also talked about this in the context of her relationship and being out in public with her girlfriend in a heteronormative society. I think about when I'm with my girlfriend and we're like holding hands on the street and like we get looks and whatever, and like th- that actually does not phase me anymore, which is super nice because it used to scare me a little bit. It when scares I was me. <laughs> 
But now I'm just like, yeah, so what? Like, take a look. Like, for the most part, I don't think anyone's going to come at me. But then I say that and I think about those girls in London mm-hmm. on the tube who got attacked. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of terrifying to just be out in the world. So passing or straight passing privilege is like super nice, mm-hmm. but it also has its downsides of like every single time you meet someone new, they're going to assume you're straight for the most part until you tell them otherwise. And then you have to go through this like whole other othering process again, where you're like automatically establish yourself as like not the majority right yo and like the amount of people who ask like really weird questions about it yeah or like the amount of straight girls i've talked to who have been like oh like maybe i'm gay and i'm like that's great like figure it out on your own i'm not here for you to figure it out (laughs) i think the funniest thing that's ever happened is like i i i tell someone i'm gay or something like that and the first question they ask is like oh are you a top or a bottom (laughs) i'm just like oh my god none of your business you don't need to know how i have business jesus christ yeah i think that there's like also kind of the association of like because a different sexuality, people associate that with, like, sex so easily, you know? Because mm-hmm. it's always looked at sex, like, in history, it's, like, a deviant sexuality. Yeah, and, like, I was reading about this, and, like, the word homosexual, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's like, so focused on sex, right? I just thought it was interesting, but it's, like, keep your nose out of my business, okay? Yeah, really. Yeah, and, like, another thing is, like, minority stress just in general, right? Like, microaggressions, like, of, like, oh, someone asking you if you're, like, a guy hitting on you. It's, like, it kind of builds up over time, I mm-hmm. feel. And, I mean, it's, like, and the thing is is that it's just as damaging as, like, someone who has PTSD, right? Like, over time, like, having to be exposed to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, of course, the minority stress that I experience is going to be obviously different than what you experience and what your girlfriend experiences. Mm -hmm. But I I have found it, like, I've, like, felt it, like, you know, like, I have felt the, the stress part of that. Have oh, you, do you have, sure. like, a similar, I don't know, experience with that? I mean, when my girlfriend and I first started dating, it was, like, I don't know, five months ago, and we were we were on the metro, and it was, like, maybe, like, our fourth date or something like that, and she, like, tried to kiss me, and I was, like, mm-mm-mm, and she's, like, what's up? And I was, like, no, like, there's people, and it's, like, I could feel that kind of terrifying pressure of like just knowing that someone around could be looking and be bothered by it and have something to say and like come at us and like I just don't want to welcome it and it was the same thing where holding hands walking down the street if I saw my reflection I could find myself sometimes having those same thoughts Mm -hmm. as like what I imagine other people feel when they look at me but then like I remember really vividly I was hanging out with my girlfriend we were wandering around and I saw this like lesbian couple holding hands walking down the street just like being cute and it just made my heart like so happy that I was like there's got to be like queer girls out there that like see me and my girlfriend holding hands and they're like oh like that's dope like that's really nice to look at like that makes me happy and like makes me feel represented and like I have a community in some kind of way right it's almost worse or not, it's not worse, but it feels worse sometimes, the kind of fear that you create in yourself without even the outside yeah, world, like, like actively doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's this, like, passivity of just, like, you're you're terrified, but there's no specific thing showing you that you should be scared yeah. right this very second. And it's so true, right? Queer people are always in this heightened state of monitoring their behavior and always having this fear in the back of our minds. For me, this fear in the back of my mind has also led me to hide my mental illness and my previous struggles with mental health because similar to the stigma associated with being gay or being queer, 
I thought that my mental illness would only compound on that fear in the back of my mind and that someone was going to think of me differently because of me being queer but also having a mental illness. And after a pretty traumatic summer between my first and second year with a lot of family stuff, I came back to Montreal pretty much a wreck, and a minor inconvenience with a guy who basically just told me that he wasn't interested in me sent me into a full depressive episode with five years of unchecked, unrecognized, and undiagnosed mental illness unleashing. And a pretty big symptom, or perhaps even a cause, was the underlying intense loneliness that I felt throughout my day-to-day, from the isolation of still having to establish myself as queer, as well as the lifelong process of coming out, but also with the feelings of having to deal with my mental illness alone. I soon found myself trying to find a psychiatrist, and through McGill I was able to see someone relatively quickly, but I was also directed towards McGill Counseling Services, which was an entirely different story. There were long wait times, I had a therapist who saw me like once every two weeks and would sometimes forget my name, and basically gave me no help because she could barely remember why I was there or who I was. In our last session before I decided to find another therapist, she told me that, quote, she didn't know how to help me anymore, which is exactly what you should not say to someone in therapy or with a mental health issue. After this pretty bad experience with therapy, I took a break, but my psychiatrist recommended that if I didn't want to be on medication long term, that I should probably go back into therapy. And then you have to go through this whole process of trying to find a therapist that specializes in LGBTQ issues or has experience with LGBTQ clients. And that basically brings me to where I am now. I've been in, back in therapy for a bit over a year. My therapist is great. She actually remembers my name and my, you know, all of the issues I have. She follows up with me on stuff. It's amazing. But I'm extremely fortunate to, that I live in a place where these resources are available to me and that I have health insurance to cover the cost of my medication and some of the cost of therapy. But besides that, mental health care remains inaccessible to a lot of people, especially therapists and other mental health professionals that specialize in sexuality and gender expression and identity. They're, they really are few and far between, even though the queer subset of the population faces disproportionate amounts of mental health conditions. My experience is only part of a trend of queer people suffering disproportionately from mental illness and loneliness. Looking into this episode and researching, I found a lot of research and personal stories about mental health and loneliness, and it was somewhat comforting to know that I'm not alone in this experience, but also alarming because the mental health indicators for the queer community are pretty discerning. Before I go into that, Michael Johnson of the Lavender Health LGBTQ Resource Center describes how queer youth face five different types of isolation that compound and build on one another. So first, there's social isolation, kind of like what I mentioned before, but it's basically loneliness and a structural loneliness in its most basic form. So not being able to talk to people about sexual and gender identity, a lack of social support, no contact with the LGBT community, social withdrawal and victimization, which was basically exactly like my high school experience. Then you also have emotional isolation. So this is LGBT youth who feel separated emotionally from social networks, including the family. They feel guarded about their sexuality, which may heighten feelings of emotional isolation. Then we also have cognitive isolation, which is LGBT youth often do not have access to LGBT-specific information or role models, and much of the information we are exposed to is negative and harmful, which only reinforces the feelings of isolation. Then there's also the concealment of identity. Because of the pressures to be normal, LGBTQ youth often try to conform to heteronormative expectations isolating themselves from other people who may outwardly appear LGBT to avoid being discovered or because of internalized homophobia. And lastly, recognition that the self is different from heteronormative society. 
LGBTQ youth recognize that they are different than societal expectations as soon as they acknowledge their own sexual and or gender identity. And knowing that you are different, while this experience is for the most part invisible, is extremely isolating. And George and I both related to each of these types of isolation through our processes of coming out and queer experiences and our experience in high school, and probably most queer people can. And that just adds to the story of loneliness and isolation in our community and just how prevalent it is as well. And all these factors work together, leading to a pretty isolating and lonely experience for a lot of queer people, especially those that live in less accepting areas around the world who not only face these internal factors, but also legal discrimination through discriminatory laws such as the transphobic bathroom or public indecency laws, or living in places such as Brunei that recently implemented a law that punishes gay sex and adultery with death by stoning. And the individual role that loneliness plays in this whole mental health picture for queer people hasn't really been investigated in research and academia, but queer people are three times more likely to experience a mental health condition, with queer people 2.5 times more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and substance misuse, queer youth are four times more likely to experience suicidality and engage in self-harm, 38 to 46 percent of transgender individuals experience suicidal ideation, 20 to 30% of queer individuals abuse substances compared to only 9% of the general population. And these numbers vary a lot depending on the study's location and sample. So for example, in Ontario, 77% of trans respondents had seriously considered suicide and 45% had attempted suicide. And youth and those who had experienced assault were found to be at the greatest risk. If you take an intersectional approach to this, those whose identity sits at the intersection of two or more marginalized groups often face even higher rates of mental illness. For example, 56% of trans Indigenous Americans have attempted suicide, taking into account that trans women are far more likely to experience discrimination and violence, but you also have to consider the disproportionate rates of homicide and missing person cases amongst Indigenous women on top of that. There is some evidence, but it is still under-researched, that higher rates of mental illness in queer populations are due to heightening and long-term exposure of queer people to societal and institutional prejudice and discrimination, which is basically called men stress. Kind of like how Georgia and I were talking about the microaggressions adding up over time, the internalization of negative messages about being different can become beliefs that fester and develop into two struggles. Shame about who you are and what we feel, but also guilt about the things that we do. And I think that this quote from an article called Healing the Wounds of Prejudice by Al Zwiers sums up this case of perfectly reflecting of the roots of these issues as well as possible ways to address them. Imagine knowing at a young age that you are different. Imagine that you see your difference contrasted every day in the relationships you grow up around. Imagine that your peers hurl insults defining how you are different. Imagine that the social and cultural institutions inform you that your difference is not acceptable. Imagine that you long to be with others who are also different but don't have a way to connect with them. Imagine knowing at a young age that you are different. Imagine you learn that being different is okay. Imagine that you feel safe and nurtured in your families, culture, and society. Imagine that you develop a strong sense of connection to a diverse community. Imagine that you are taught to love what makes you different. Just imagine. And that quote's a perfect segue into some of the things that have been shown to reduce loneliness and isolation and associated mental health impacts. So the Canadian Mental Health Association lists a few things that improve the mental health outcomes for queer youth. The first one is, is have hope. 
And I know that's really, really corny, but there are some things changing. For example, my high school now has gender-neutral washrooms throughout the school. They have dedicated therapists and support staffs for students. And when I recently went back to visit and teach this guest lecture, I was shocked to see all of this. And Georgia kind of voiced this corny, but re- very, very real hopefulness as well. I mean, what always comes to mind is like all of the cliches of like, it gets better. And like, you're not alone in this. I guess, like, the best advice I would give is to, like, if you're not in a position where you can be safely out in your life, there's spaces online where you can meet people and interact with people. There's research you can do. Like, my biggest thing with coming out for me was I started watching this girl, Lacey Green, on YouTube, and she would talk about, like, sex education. And it wasn't even, like, like, she would talk about, like, homosexuality and stuff like that. But, like, it was mostly, like, just sex ed. But there was something about, like, learning about human bodies in not, like, a disgusting, like, school way mm-hmm. that, like, made me more, well like, comfortable with, like, understanding and, like, experimenting with, like, who I am in, like, my sexuality. And I don't know. It's such a hard thing because, like, if you're young and gay and in the closet, like, it's never going to be super easy. Yeah. Like, there's just no way you're going to be like, oh, yeah, this is fine and comfortable. Like, there is always a discomfort to it, but it fully does get better. Yeah, and I think that, that, like, one of the most important things is that even though you might feel isolated and alone and, like, that there's no one out for there and that there's no services available, like, that's at least how I felt when I was coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, when I was coming out and when I was in high school. It's, like, there really are, like, there is, like, especially now, like, there's things like the Trevor Project. I mean, there's, like, a bunch of hotlines. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of online spaces and, like, YouTube as well. It's, like, the category, like, the, the LGBTQ community on YouTube, like... Six, six years ago was like basically Tyler Oakley and that oh, was it yeah. but now it's huge and I think that that's so great because again it's like representation like in media and stuff like that is now kind of exposing people to the idea of like oh wow wait what trans people exist mm-hmm. and like what trans people started like the ballroom scene and what RuPaul's Drag Race is for it's mm-hmm. like people didn't really like get that but now that there's like shows like Pose and like shows like I don't know Modern Family with which is what I watched when I was a kid it's like it kind of, it, I don't want to say legitimizes those identities, but like puts them in the public view where they previously yeah. have never existed. Yeah. And I think that that's really important, especially for young queer people. Finding representation is like, it can be like a lifesaver, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and sometimes you got to watch some awful TV shows to get that little bit of representation, but that feeling you get of like seeing someone on a show that reminds you of yourself, that like... That you previously have never seen before. It's lightly heartbreaking because you realize how much you crave it in your life when you finally feel that feeling but it's also really sweet and like you feel kind of thankful and you're like yeah like this is normal and it is really true i mean representation really did matter for me and seeing just these two characters uh, was really beneficial obviously i would have loved to have the whole breadth of characters that we have now that are queer again it's not amazing but it's getting better and better Another thing is that support from family and friends is extremely beneficial, particularly for youth. Supportive workplaces and neighborhoods, low levels of internalized homophobia, which can be fostered and supported through community building with other LGBTQ individuals. So things like volunteering or joining a community group, anything like that, or going on meetup, which I mentioned uh, last episode, as well as experience positive responses to coming out. Experiencing positive responses to coming out is associated with a reduced risk of substance abuse, as well as a bunch of other mental health indicators as well. Uh, but also kind of this is more of a barriers to access and a little bit more of uh, an institutional factor as well as is addressing other social determinants of health. 
so things like making mental health care more accessible and affordable to everyone. But obviously all of these things are not possible for everyone, so it's important to seek out the things that you can get that will reaffirm your struggles and validate your experiences. So things like finding a chosen family, finding a community center that has drop-in hours, uh, or online services like the Trevor Project, which is the leading national organization providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention to LGBTQ plus young people under 25. Uh, but the Trevor Project as also advocates against anti-LGBTQ policies, such as the bathroom bills and the indecency laws that I was mentioning earlier, but also they have a huge campaign that's been going on now um, to try to get conversion therapy banned in all states in the U.S. Georgia and I discussed some other strategies too, especially in relation to queer community building. And like kind of going back to the fact that you <clears> talked <throat> about not having a physical, uh, like a physical space to go to, or just like kind of having a little bit of a disconnect in the queer community, uh, and especially for lesbian women, do you think that that leads to like a certain feeling of isolation that you're kind of mentioning? Like the fact that we don't have these places anymore and like people are for feeling more lonely, or do you think that there's like a replacement type of community? Absolutely. Like... I think with bars especially, like, I did so much research when I was in first year because I wanted to go and, like, be around queer people and, like, have those queer spaces. And I went to, like, Unity and Sky and it was all gay men and then, like, five lesbians there or, like, just five queer girls. And it was really, it was super disappointing and made me feel like that extra level of loneliness that I thought I'd be able to get out of after high school. But, I mean, like, dating apps and stuff kind of show you that there are queer girls in Montreal and classes. I'm an English lit major, so that kind of means that there's a lot of queer girls in my major. <laughs> so how can we as queer people support each other and like other queer people more generally just because like the prevalence of mental health conditions is so high? Like how can we support each other in like making sure that we're finding the right help or whether it's like having that community and stuff like that? Do you have any strategies? As like a queer person yourself if you want to find that support and show support with other people I think the best thing to do is like find clubs volunteer things like that the only thing that comes to mind because it's a really hard question is to just talk about it when you talk to like your queer friends like you talk about how you're feeling and you don't let people bottle it up and like you start off with like showing them you're comfortable with it and like giving them room and space to talk and you don't tell them they're wrong or invalidate their feelings you just listen and you're like yeah because it is when it comes down to it such a universal feeling of like fear and confusion and like loneliness that comes with being queer that like we kind of because those feelings are all so isolating we forget that all these other people are feeling them just the same as we are or to an extent the same and trying to connect with people over those similar experiences no matter how different like your personal experiences it are but like having those same feelings of isolation that's like it combats those feelings yes yeah, talking about it with someone for sure yeah and kind of going off of that like you're talking about like community groups and stuff like that but how can like we as queer people i guess like for me i, I do feel a particular disconnect from like the greater queer community just because mm -hmm. i'm not particularly inserted in it but do you think that like the best way to combat loneliness in the queer community would be to kind of do what you just said like or do you have any other type of methods or like any type of things that you've done that, to kind of try to fight fight that i mean for me when i go out with friends i always try and find queer events mm -hmm. 
I remember when I was younger, like when I first came to university, I joined like the Facebook group Queer Concordia where it told me all about like different like queer events and things like that in like Montreal. That like, because I think when it comes down to it, the sense of community is a little bit gone when it comes to like queer identity and like people surrounding it. Like I just think that that as time has changed and as like queer people are being more accepted like into the world that like tight-knit community feeling is going to disappear just because it's going to slowly blend with everyone else you know so i think in that like we can find small little aspects of community but there's never going to be this like strong feeling of like a universal community because also like queer identity like with gender and sexuality it's so broad now as we're like learning about other different like ways to express yourself and feel how you feel so i think that like as the community grows and grows and grows there's gonna be little pockets where there's gonna be like this one like big connection with the queer community and i think that having that big connection to the queer community is so important and it's something that i'm still trying to build and like part of this podcast is trying to build that queer community as well trying to center it and kind of raise awareness of the issues so that we can become stronger Uh, but it is just such a feeling connected and part of a web of queer people is really really important and i have seen the benefits as well and the gay loneliness article that i mentioned earlier um, in the podcast it kind of talks about a strategy where instead of considering yourself an outsider and working to make yourself an insider, so like fitting into heteronormative society or kind of like the assimilationist standpoint that I talked about in the last episode, you should really be finding people who can reflect and validate your experience. So finding people who can understand you and the triggers and stressors that come with being different and being queer. And no matter where you live, there will be people that can share some experiences with you. As we wind down this episode, I want to remind people again that every queer experience is different and every queer person will have their own relationship with mental health and loneliness. And this process of coming out is never ending. Hopefully Georgia and I's experience was at least somewhat relatable and even though those statistics seem pretty depressing, it was pretty depressing researching this episode, I hope that through this podcast and mental health advocacy work that people can get the support from friends and family that we need. And mental health practitioners adapt to the unique experiences and challenges that queer people face. So I just want to shout out some hotlines in case anyone listening would need them. So Trevor Line offers trained counselors for LGBTQ youth 24-7. Their number is 1-866-488-7386. The Trevor Project also offers online services, including Trevor Chat, where you can speak to a trained counselor online. If you're in the U.S., the Gay and Lesbian National Hotline is one 843 If you're not in crisis but would like to speak to someone about mental health or if you're feeling socially isolated, the LGBT youth line in Canada is 1-800-268-9688. And finally, on a little bit more of a happier note, happy Montreal Pride or Fierté Montréal. I'm really excited to be releasing this podcast during Pride as the city is filled with, you know, the magic queer energy. But I actually did want to highlight some of the events and workshops taking place over the two weeks if you are in Montreal and you want to take part. So first off, there's actually one that is very, very relevant to this podcast and that I actually will be attending. It's called Emotional First Aid and Coping with Loneliness. It's on Saturday, August 10th from 2 to 5. All the details can be found on the Pride Montreal website, which I will link in the description. And there's also a community day on the 17th where community organizations and queer artists basically take over St. Catherine Street. So be sure to check out that as well. And the actual Pride Parade is on the Sunday, the 18th. And remember, keep Pride political. That's all for me. 
So stay tuned for the next episode as we'll be talking to some preservationists about the preservation of queer spaces and why placing queer history into physical spaces is so important. Thanks for listening, and as always, send me your feedback by email at qhqtpodcast at gmail.com. So that's qhqtpodcast at gmail.com on Twitter at Noah D. Powers or on Instagram at noah.png. This podcast is produced, written, and edited by Noah Powers with support from the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. The cover art for this podcast was designed and painted by my super talented friend Morgan Davis, and you can find her work on Instagram at Morgan Davis Art or Redbubble, both of which are linked in the notes of this episode. QHQT would like to acknowledge the generous support of Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and Canada Service Corps for funding this project through their Rising Youth Grant. The music for this podcast is Sunset by ESCP, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.